We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you and more than likely what the creators of Haunt TV may consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, it's another healthcare worker turned angel of death true crime case. But before we nosedive off the deep end into that, I'll share what I need a distraction from this week. As always, if you want to hear your reason for a distraction on a future episode, please feel free to shoot me a DM or send me an email. In terms of my need for distraction this week, I would have to say my need for distraction is it's almost the end of October and I feel as though I haven't done a lot of spooky stuff. It's been a good month. It's been busy, but I haven't done anything spooky. I haven't gone to really any known reported haunted locations. I haven't really done much and it makes me kind of sad because, you know, I guess you can do that stuff all year round, but it's a little bit special to do it in the month of October. There's also just a lot going on with work and figuring out what I want to do next for work and, you know, just a bunch of also personal stuff going on. Not that I can't share it all with you. It's just I think when it comes to a podcast, I find that there are some podcasters that kind of air out everything and that's totally fine. That's up to them. There are some aspects of my life that I don't want to air out on the show because that's not what the show is about. But needless to say, your girl is busy, she's tired, and she needs a distraction. So without further ado, let's get into this week's true crime episode. Why is it that some people who end up in healthcare or jobs that focus on assisting people end up harming people or even killing them? Is it a case of burnout, untreated mental health, financial gain? It could be all of those reasons or perhaps just a mixture of the person's own morbid choices and reasonings. Speaking of morbid, this week's American true crime case focuses on Michael Swango, a man who once set out to help people, and yet he could be responsible for up to 60 fatal poisonings of patients and colleagues. I know this month has been pretty paranormal-based, given it is spooky season, but let me tell you, there is nothing more terrifying than someone in an authority or caregiver figure with deadly hands whose one nickname is Dr. Death. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics, and other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Michael Joseph Swango was born a Libra on October 21st of 1954 in Tacoma, Washington. Michael's parents, Muriel and John Swango, already had one child before Michael and would go on to have either one or two more siblings. Some resources differ in terms of how many siblings Michael actually has. Michael's dad, John, reportedly served in the Vietnam War, and when he returned home from his deployment, he allegedly struggled with depression. John and Muriel would eventually get a divorce, as reports claim the relationship became too strained to repair. So the two split, and Michael would reportedly see his father, who moved into a trailer park, 
very sparsely. Michael's father reportedly died in 1982 due to cirrhosis of the liver. Michael would develop a close relationship with his mother, and on the outside looking in, he seemed to be growing up okay without his dad around. One article noted that a local who knew Michael referred to him as nice and polite and clean-cut. He was a bright man. Well, sort of. Apparently, Michael would read and keep articles discussing violent deaths since he was a kid. It seemed that Michael had this intrigue regarding these deaths, and eventually the article clippings became a scrapbook, which his mother, Muriel, would help contribute cutouts to. Michael went on to be the valedictorian of his graduating high school class, participant in extracurriculars. Hell, he was even reportedly voted most likely to succeed. Michael eventually took after his father and registered in the Marine Corps, although he never saw any time overseas himself. After receiving an honorable discharge from the Marines in the 1980s, Michael entered into post-secondary education. He attended Quincy University, which is located in Quincy, Illinois, where he reportedly graduated with honors in 1979. He then attends the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine between 1979 to 1983. One article I came across described Michael as a gifted medical student, which showed when he was attending Quincy University. But it was when he was attending med school that others noticed some odd behavior from Michael when he was simultaneously working as a paramedic in Springfield, Illinois. Some resources claim he was an ambulance attendant, which could be the same thing as a paramedic, depending on the location. I couldn't really find the difference, but that doesn't mean there isn't one, and if anyone's listening and knows the difference, let me know. Now, to elaborate further on this kind of odd behavior... Here's a direct quote from the book Blind Eye, The Terrifying Story of a Doctor Who Got Away with Murder by James B. Stewart. Quote, His fellow paramedics, many whom thought highly of Michael's work, nonetheless noted his unusual fascination with violent death. End quote. Based on what I gathered in the book, his colleagues even watched him put in articles into his weird, morbid death scrapbook. I think there's a bit to unpack here. I mean, on one hand, he's ingesting true crime content that many do on an average basis. Yes, we listen to podcasts, we watch shows, or read books about different deaths, especially violent ones, it seems. Michael was consuming the similar content, if you really want to think about it, except he was collecting articles and keeping them. So on the other hand, making a scrapbook consisting of violent deaths reported in newspapers is kind of a red flag to me personally. But morbid scrapbooking aside, Michael's ambulance work began taking a toll on his well-being, which then took a toll on his education. Michael would supposedly work 24-hour shifts during his second and third years at med school, often not sleeping more than two to three hours a night if he slept at all. I don't care who you are or what, there's no way that that's healthy or manageable whatsoever. And for Michael, it wasn't. He was beginning to display angry outbursts, showing up to lectures unprepared, and would reportedly leave class to fulfill work requests. So he'd be in class, he'd get a page saying, hey, we need you to come to the office. I don't know if that's actually what it said because pagers were before my time. Anyways, he would get a page and then just dip out of class and go to work. Which, I mean, look, I get med school is expensive. You need the money, but at the same time, you also need to be in school. You can't get an education if you're not there. Point blank, period. 
And then there were the noticed deaths at his ambulance job. One resource noted that many of Swango's assigned patients ended up coding or suffering life-threatening emergencies with at least five of them dying. His co-workers even gave him the nickname Double O Swango, which a Mitchell Republic website explained that this was a play on of the code number for the fictional character James Bond, who had a license to kill. On the outside looking in at this time, Michael seemed to be an odd fellow who was perhaps fascinating over death a little bit too much, with death seemingly always rambling nearby. I can imagine that not many people really picked up or maybe knew fully what was going on behind closed doors as Michael, by all accounts, seemed like your average guy, minus a few morbid newspaper clippings. However, Michael's true self started to show in a further decline with his medical education. About a month before Michael was due to graduate, some of Michael's classmates informed faculty members that they suspected Michael was faking checkups during his OBGYN rotation. Apparently, the fraudulent checkups could have started as early as his second year, but this was the first time anyone had really put a light on the situation and saw what was happening. Michael apparently was on the brink of expulsion at this time, and his classmates were divided. Some of them believed he was innocent. Others, well, not so much on the believe train. Ultimately, Michael was allowed to remain after a committee member voted to give him a second chance, which was in the school's favor, given there was word on the street that Michael had either hired or consulted a lawyer. Even though Michael was saved, several students and faculty members had raised concerns about his competence to practice medicine. Nonetheless, the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine allowed him to graduate one year after his entering classmates, with one condition, being he was to repeat the OBGYN rotation and complete several assignments in other specialties. Despite all this drama, Michael was also still able to get a recommendation letter when it came to internships and residencies. This recommendation landed him a surgical internship at Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983 to be followed by a residency in neurosurgery. Jumping to February of 1984, Michael's doing his thing, and all of a sudden, reports claim that a nursing student approached hospital leaders after allegedly seeing Michael tamper with an IV on a patient. Said patient then suffered a seizure and respiratory arrest. The patient survives, but this considerably becomes a red flag to the nursing student. This nursing student isn't alone, though, as other hospital staff suspect Michael, who is working as an intern within the neurosurgery department, of being associated with five deaths on the ward. From what I gathered online, the hospital leaders at first dismissed the initial claim by the nurse, until the claim turned into multiple claims. So it was more than just the previously mentioned unnamed nurse who made the claim, it was multiple people. And it just seemed like Michael Swango's name kept being brought up in the worst way. Which isn't that always the case. It's always the frontline workers that call the crappy workers out and management just never seems to believe them. It always seems to be that way, at least in my experience. Hospital leaders proceed to conduct interviews before ultimately dismissing the growing suspicions. 
By the next month, Ohio State recommends Michael for medical licensure and he completes his internship. But they don't ask him to stay for residency in the neurosurgery department where he was doing his internship. This could be for a multitude of different reasons, but it's just something to keep in mind, especially given the fact that this comes after all of these complaints come in. Regardless, Michael always seemed quick to bounce back on his feet. And by July of that same year, Michael found work as a paramedic in Quincy, Illinois. It wasn't long before Michael's colleagues noticed a change within their team when Michael joined. And it wasn't a positive one. Michael's colleagues were reportedly becoming ill and suspected that their newest team member may be behind it. So Michael's working on this paramedic team, and as mentioned, his colleagues notice that after he starts, they become weirdly sick. It seems as if they've been poisoned. And so with this information at hand, they go to local police, who eventually search Michael's home. According to a Columbus Monthly article, police discovered a mini-laboratory of poisons, including handwritten recipes for ricin, botulism and supersaturated cyanide within Michael's home. This really makes me question how smart Michael really is if he's keeping this kind of evidence just hanging around his place. It's kind of a dumb move on his end, although it's good he did because obviously we wouldn't be talking about him today if he, you know, wasn't a bit sloppy. Michael would be charged and also have his license to practice medicine suspended because of this. By August of 1985, Michael would be convicted in the non-fatal poisonings of his now former colleagues, where he reportedly only served two years of a five-year sentence. As such, Michael is released in August of 1987. Some resources say 1989. However, I believe it was between those years. After his release, Michael reportedly worked as a counselor at the State Career Development Center in Newport News, Virginia. This gig did not last long as he was apparently fired after being caught working on his scrapbook of death on work time. They did not want him to be doing any of his morbid crafts at work and, well, he didn't listen. While Michael was gone in prison and doing the counseling gig, he was most certainly not forgotten by the medical communities he so graciously worked at. Before I keep going, shout out to the Columbus Monthly article, which will be listed in the resource Google Doc for today's episode, as they provide a really good timeline breakdown so my little burnt out brain could kind of comprehend how everything panned out. Anyways, in October of 1984, Ohio State University police are joined by the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office and the State Medical Board as they investigate into Michael's time at Ohio State Hospital given, well, all the red flags and speculations. Even though there seem to be a good chunk of suspicious stories, there is just no hard evidence and thus no one could form any charges. Then in February of 1985, Ohio State Law School Dean James Meeks investigates the university's handling of Michael during his internship. Meeks was not impressed with how the hospital carried things out, aka the dismissal and just overall kind of the ignorance of all the concerns that were being brought to their attention, which Meeks apparently noted in a very sharply worded report that concluded that the hospital's inquiry was, quote, far too superficial. 
But now let's focus on 1991. Some accounts claim 1992, but we'll, we'll get to there, don't worry. After Michael's release, he does plan to try and get into another residency, but that's going to take a bit. So Michael worked as a laboratory tech in Newport News for a company called Addy Cole. It's spelled A-T-I-C-O-A-L. I think I'm pronouncing it right, but let me know if I'm not. Shortly after he started there, his colleagues sought out medical attention with complaints of persistent and increasing stomach pains around this time. I don't think anyone initially tied the weird symptoms that the team was facing when Michael started to Michael. I think initially they're like, oh, maybe it's just a stomach bug going around. And I don't think they're initially like, yep, it's Swango. He's automatically the guy. Weird stomach bugs aside, it was at this job in Newport News that Michael fell in love with a local nurse named Kristen. Apparently, the two had met at the local hospital that Kristen worked at because Michael was there doing a refresher course of some sorts. The two were reportedly head over heels for one another. They were infatuated with one another. They thought highly of one another. And the two even talked about one day getting married. And yet, wedded bliss was not a reality for Michael, who couldn't resist but to try his hand again at becoming a doctor. Michael reportedly left his gig as a lab tech sometime in 1991. I'm not sure when in that year, but he left. And by 1992, he landed himself a residency at the San Ford USD Medical Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You may be wondering, how in the hell was this man able to get into another hospital after everything that happened? Sadly, it doesn't sound like it was that hard for him. Michael legally changed his name to David J. Adams and applied with forged documents. Michael would go by various names over his quote-unquote career, including David James Adams, Jack Kirk, Michael Kirk, and Michael Swan. In the forged documents, Michael, aka Daniel, was a shining star. Even changing the narrative for his time in prison as a simple misdemeanor as opposed to poisoning his colleagues. Again, we have another scenario where, on the outside looking in, Michael, aka whatever name you want to call him at this point, I'm just going to keep calling him Michael, seems like a good guy. On the outside looking in, he seems great. He's attractive. To some, I'm going to say not to me, but to some, he's attractive, he's smart, and he's just doing everything that is expected of him. But Michael's rise to success at Sanford came crashing down when mysterious patient deaths were on the rise, and his true identity was also discovered. It turns out Michael got too confident and tried to apply with his forged documents as Daniel to the American Medical Association, aka the AMA. The AMA dug deep, conducting a more thorough background check than the Sanford Hospital did, where the AMA found out all of Michael's dirty past, including the poisoning conviction. Here's the real kicker. By Thanksgiving Day of that year, Michael found himself on TV, and not because he was this medical mastermind or anything positive. It turns out that the Discovery Channel aired an episode of Justice Files, which actually included a segment on Michael and his previous crimes. Amid the episode release and the AMA report, plus calls from frightened colleagues, Sanford Hospital fired Michael. Michael was also subsequently dumped by Kristen, who, weirdly enough, was suffering from unknown headaches near the end of her and Michael's relationship. Headaches that, when she left Michael, were all of a sudden gone.
Michael decides to restart his medical career again and heads to the state of New York. He was eventually hired as a psychiatry resident at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where he is assigned to a Veterans Administration Hospital. The funny thing about the past, though, is that it eventually comes up one way or another, whether it's the details that come out from the woodworks or past behaviors begin to repeat themselves. It started off the same in New York for Michael. His patients began dying for no applicable reason, in which red flags slowly start to be raised. Four months after starting in New York, Michael's ex, Kristen, reportedly dies by suicide. An autopsy would reveal that there was arsenic found in her body at the time of her death. Now, arsenic can stay in the body for up to several months, which means there is a potential window of opportunity given Michael and Kristen had been separated for less than that. That, and Kristen would still have previous poisoning remnants in her body from when she was with Michael. I'm not sure exactly when Kristen's mother learns more about Michael's true identity. I don't know if it was after she got the results of the autopsy or if it was when they initially broke up. But regardless, Sharon finds out continuously more about Michael and who he was and pretending to be after Kristen's death, based on what I gathered online. Horrified and perhaps having all the red flags she could find, Sharon contacted a friend of her late daughter's who was a nurse at Sanford Hospital where Kristen and Michael first met. This friend alerted Sanford's dean, Robert Talley, to Michael's whereabouts. Mr. Talley then reportedly phones the dean at Stony Brook, being a man named Joseph Cohen, which then this game of telephone goes to the head of Stony Brook's psychiatry department, being Alan Miller. Alan confronts Michael about the allegations, and apparently Michael admits to lying about his poison convictions in Illinois. Promptly so, after this conversation, Michael was fired. Higher-ups at Stony Brook Hospital were publicly called out for hiring Michael without a proper background check, and as such, some were forced to resign. Before walking away from Stony Brook as the former dean, Joseph Cohen supposedly sent a warning letter about Michael to all 125 medical schools and all 1,000 teaching hospitals across the United States. Explaining in the letter why he decided to do this, Joseph wrote the following. I bring this matter to your attention because I think we must assume that he will try again to secure a residency position of some kind somewhere. I would recommend that you alert all of your training program directors and other responsible officials in your institution so that you may avoid the risk that we and others have been subjected to by this man. You should also be aware that Swango, who is 39 years old, has recently begun to use a different name, Jackson Michael Kirk. He has also used the name David Adams and, of course, may still adopt others. I encourage you to call me to further discuss the strange case of Dr. Swango, end quote. Even though this motive would hinder Michael's medical plans, he continued to still be employed. Supposedly, he worked in Atlanta, Georgia at one point as a chemist for probably what seemed like a hot minute, before fleeing the country to Zimbabwe, where he gets a job at a hospital in Mine. It turns out Michael got out of town because the FBI got involved. They were aware of Michael's sketchy work and allegedly had a warrant out for his arrest on fraud charges. And if you're curious as to what happened when Michael got to Zimbabwe, well, just like the other hospitals, staff began noticing that patients seemed to die mysteriously once they were working with Michael. 
From how the Columbus Monthly website has broken this all down, all of this is taking place sometime in 1994, and Michael does get arrested and charged at some point, but then he goes MIA. In June of 1997, Michael is hired by a hospital in Saudi Arabia. However, he has to come back that month to the United States in order to get his visa. And you bet your sweet buns that as soon as he lands in a Chicago airport, he gets picked up on those previously mentioned federal fraud charges. Finally, the feds have got him, he's in custody, and people can rest assured that he is not in a hospital setting. Michael goes to trial for this, where he pleads guilty and is sentenced to three years in prison, but his time in the legal system is far from over. Michael is set to be released in July of 2000, but before he even leaves, federal investigators charge him in the 1993 deaths of three of his veteran administration hospital patients. It turns out, while Michael was in prison for fraud, the FBI had some of their patients exhumed to see if they had been poisoned. The patients of the Veterans Administration Hospital that were exhumed were confirmed to have been poisoned and, not so shockingly, were all under the former care of Dr. Michael Swango. Michael Swango would be charged with three counts of murder and one count each of assault, false statements, mail fraud, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud from the state of New York. If that wasn't already a good kick to Michael's ego, Zimbabwean authorities simultaneously charged him with poisoning seven patients, five of who reportedly died. According to resources, FBI agents interviewed Michael in prison before his release, where he would be faced to deal with not only the New York State-related charges, but he would also have to face the fact that he would be extradited to Zimbabwe to face charges of murder and attempted murder. Not wanting to face the death penalty in Zimbabwe because it was on the table, Michael and prosecutors agreed that if he talked, he would stay in the United States and serve a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Michael Joseph Swango, who is 54 years old, would be formally indicted on July 17th of 2000, and he apparently pled not guilty. Which, that would change on September 6th, where he would plead guilty to three murder counts, as well as wire fraud and mail fraud. But just wait, we're not even done with the legal stuff yet, because the next month, being October of 2000, Michael pled guilty in the state of Columbus to the 1984 slaying of 19-year-old Cynthia McGee. Cynthia was apparently from Dublin, Ireland, who died at University Hospital in Columbus while recovering from an automobile accident. Cynthia was reportedly treated by Michael and his so-called treatment, including giving her a potassium injection that stopped her heart. Michael is currently spending the rest of his hopeful, miserable life behind bars at the Administrative Maximum Facility, aka ADX Florence, located near Florence, Colorado. According to Wikipedia, in a direct quote about ADX Florence, quote, the facility is best known for housing inmates who have been deemed too dangerous, too high profile, or too great a security risk for even maximum security prisons. The majority of current inmates, however, have been placed there because each has an extensive history in other prisons of committing violent crimes, including murder, against corrections officers and fellow inmates. These inmates are kept in administrative segregation. They are kept in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. End quote. It doesn't bring his victims back or take away any of the trauma he caused, but I wonder if those whose lives were affected by Michael were relieved to know that he is in such a location like ADX Florence. 
Now, for those recalling the intro to this week's episode, you may be asking where the number 60 came from in terms of total victims. Well, I don't believe it's been fully proven, but many suspect there are a lot more victims whose deaths Michael was responsible for, whose legal justice never saw and may never see the inside of a courtroom. Michael, from my understanding, has only ever admitted, thus far, to causing four deaths. Before wrapping up this week's episode, I'm also sure you're all wondering, why did Michael do what he did? Well, according to a New York Times article, he wrote about his various motives in a diary that police confiscated from him when he was arrested in Chicago. I'm going to quote that article because I think they did a really good job explaining what was in the diary. So here's the direct quote. It seems that Michael J. Swango, a former doctor, killed for the pure joy of watching and smelling death. Reading a notebook confiscated from Mr. Swango when he was arrested in a Chicago airport in 1997 on his way to Saudi Arabia, where he had a job in a hospital, prosecutors painted a portrait of a delusional serial killer. Mr. Brown on the steps of the United States District Court said today, basically, Dr. Swango liked to kill people. By his own admission in his diary, he killed because it thrilled him, end quote. I think no matter how many times I cover cases like this, I'm always going to ask this question. Why do people in healthcare or similar assistance-based careers end up committing the ultimate betrayal to their oaths by murdering their patients or clients? Of course, there is no clear-cut, consistent answer that applies to each case. It's not as if if one person commits a crime like this that the rest of them are all going to be for the same reasons. We know that by now, and that's because everyone's different, which goes without saying for Michael Swango. Although his diary claims or hints at that he did it for the thrill of it all, was that the really only reason? Was that extreme thrill-seeking stem from some childhood trauma or something completely different in and of itself? Should we take this kind of acceptance at face value, or is there more to it? Let me know your thoughts on today's episode over on the podcast social media accounts or feel free to shoot me an email. If you have any topic suggestions, please feel free to send them my way. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, anyone who you think needs a distraction about the show. Doing so is one of the best ways to support this show for free. Speaking of supporting the podcast for free, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into. When it comes to any corrections that need to be made or perhaps some constructive feedback, please feel free to send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Are you looking to rep some Weird Distractions merch? Please check out the link in today's show notes for the Bonfire link. It's never a bad time to treat somebody you love or perhaps treat yourself. Although the Patreon page is currently on an indefinite hiatus, I just want to thank the previous patrons of the show. Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Shadow, Courtney, Cheryl, Susan, Jennifer, and Kristen. 
Thank you for supporting the Patreon page. I truly appreciate every single one of you. For those on social media, Weird Distractions can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, and Facebook. Lastly, I'm always wanting to hear from you. I'm looking to hear about your weird paranormal encounters, maybe too close to home true crime cases, and other weird experiences that you're willing to share to be featured on a future Listener Distractions episode. No matter how short, how long, spooky, or just weird, send your tales my way to, again, the show's email address being weirddistractionspodcasts at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.